The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and before I start today's show, I would like to thank an unknown person for their donation of $22. This this show is only possible through donations and book sales, so if you are able to help, please go to andrewcarringtonhitchcock.com. And today is, of course, Thursday, so I'm delighted to welcome back my regular Thursday guest, Dr. Peter Hammond. I'm going to bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? I am. Thank you, Andrew. Excellent. Great to have you back, Peter. And uh, today, what Peter's got for us is a presentation entitled The Real Story of the Vikings. So where would you like to start us off today, Peter? Well, it's worthwhile noting that Thursday is named after Thor, uh, the Viking god Thor. And so it's interesting if you just look at our calendar um, on on the weekday, originally the Seven days of the week were named after Roman deities, the sun, Sunday, the moon, Monday, Mars, Mars Day, Mercury Day, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn, Saturn, Saturday. But today, uh, because of the influence of the Vikings, Viking deities have replaced four of the Roman uh, celestial planets uh, with names of Viking deities. So Tuesday is now named after the Viking god of war, Tur, or Tur. And Wednesday after the Viking war god Woden or Odin. And Thursday is named after the Viking god of war Thor. Friday after the Viking fertility goddess Frigg or Frey. And so uh, I've been fascinated with the Vikings for years because uh, the Hammonds are originally Vikings, were uh, in fact uh, invaders from Denmark. And uh, uh, later there were Hammonds or Ham of Thors who were part of the 1066 invasion although there were others who came in early with the Danes. And uh, when you think of the influence of the Vikings on us, it's actually huge. Uh, The Vikings have affected our culture in so many ways, and many English words now have their roots in Scandinavian speech. Now, these are totally Viking words. Anger, die, scant, ugly, loose, wrong, low, sky, take, window, husband. Glad, thrive, ill, beer, anchor. And these are all uh, actually Scandinavian words, which now we just recognize as English words. And the word berserk is actually from the name of a Viking soldier. So uh, saying that a person is going berserk 
refers to the demonic rage that would descend upon many Viking warriors. So a berserker uh, was a Viking soldier, and going berserk meant acting like a Viking soldier, which I presume meant flaying your spear or axe around uh, in a, a very destructive way. So uh, the Vikings are known for their violent hit-and-run raids, but the Vikings also settled in the British Isles and deeply influenced English culture uh, and also Ireland. It said that all the red hair in the British Isles and uh, Ireland in particular come from the Vikings, that uh, the, the Vikings were the red. And in fact, you can see an interesting link there considering the 10 lost tribes of Israel, so-called, uh, because uh, as we know, uh, the Bible even speaks about uh, Edom, uh, being Edom being the red or Esau being the red and, and Edom came out of that and they were the red and how uh, Esau who was Jacob's twin brother was actually red haired and hairy all over and uh, we read of David being a ruddy or a red headed uh, young boy uh, David the, the, the great king and uh, interesting enough genetically there's only 0.6% so it's less than 1% of the world's population has red hair. And uh, apparently all the red hair in the British Isles came from Vikings, which gives you a bit of a clue as to where they ancestrally could have come from. But uh, the Viking era is normally listed from 793 AD from the Viking raid in the monastery at Lindisfarne. I've been to Lindisfarne, which is an island most of the time and just a bit of a land bridge comes up at uh, low tide at uh, parts of the day. And Lindisfarne was an island which was raided by the Vikings in 793. And Alcuin wrote, never before has such terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race, nor has it been thought possible that such an inroad from the sea could have been made. Behold, the church of St. Cuthbert splattered with the blood of the priests of God, despoiled of its ornaments, a place more venerable than all of Britain has fallen prey to pagans. And soon a new prayer was added to church liturgy in Britain from the fury of the Norsemen, O Lord, protect us. And uh, when the Viking era uh, is dated to have started from about 793 with the raid in Lindisfarne, normally it's considered that the Viking era closed at about the Battle of Hastings, of AD 1066, when uh, the British Isles fell to, to the Vikings formally. Of course, much of the British Isles had already fallen to the Vikings through the Danish raids all the way through the 9th and 10th century. But in the 11th century, 1066, the Vikings took over the kingship of the whole of England uh, through the Normans. And some people think of the Normans as being French, but that's not so. The, the Normans were Northmen or Norsemen who came from the north. They were Vikings who had taken over that section of France, which um, um, even today uh, you speak about Normandy. Well, Normandy is the land that the Normans took from France. And uh, so, in fact, genetically, uh, DNA-wise, uh, ancestrally, dem demographically, they are Norsemen or Vikings, mostly from Nor Norway, but um, also from Denmark. And so while the Vikings were famous for hit and run raids, Many Vikings actually settled in the British Isles, deeply interested English and Irish culture. Dublin was founded by the Vikings, for example. And uh, the whole way that English words have been influenced by them, uh, the Vikings were not only great warriors, uh, but they're also uh, tremendous seamen. What they achieved in uh, 
crossing the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, we know it wasn't Columbus who first discovered America. It, it was, in fact, the Vikings who first landed in what today would be considered Newfoundland or, or Canada. And, uh, and that's uh, at about the year 1000. So plainly, the Vikings got to America almost five centuries before uh, Christopher Columbus and, and had been, uh, they didn't know they were at a totally different continent, uh, but we've now found all kinds of archaeological digs, which shows the Vikings were actually living uh, not only in Iceland and in Greenland, but even in uh, Newfoundland, which which today, uh, which they call Vinland, or the land of vines, or uh, where grapes are growing, and that's that's what today is Canada. And uh, the the Vikings were spectacular in their explorations. They went throughout the Mediterranean. Uh, they went all throughout Russia. In fact, even the word Rus for Russian comes from the, the red of the red-headed Vikings who, who landed there. And they went all the way up the, the Dnieper River and the Volga. And uh, it was mostly Swedish Vikings who conquered parts of Russia. And today, uh, well, the Russian royal family dated from, from the Vikings and, and so on originally. So there's a lot of fascinating influence of, of the Vikings' influence. And... Uh, I should probably start with the story of Olaf Tryggvason. Olaf Tryggvason was the son of the King of Norway and his great-grandfather, Harald Harfager, or the Fairhead, had initially established the Kingdom of Norway. And when Olaf's father was murdered in 968, uh, Olaf had fled the country with his mother and Vikings captured their ship and sold this young boy into slavery and Olaf ended up in the court of Russia's Tsar Vladimir I, where he became a favorite of the queen. And when Olaf was just 12 years old, the Tsar put a dozen ships under his command and sent him off to battle. I mean, imagine a 12-year-old being sent off to battle in command of 12 ships, no less, uh, at the command of the Tsar. Well, by the time he was 21 years old, Olaf Tryggvason was renowned as the ultimate Viking. He was tall, strong, handsome, unequaled in martial strength, and he led a huge army of Swedish Vikings and a fleet of 90 vessels to loot Holland. And after devastating the Dutch, Olaf Tryggvason went on to fight the French, and he left a massive amount of death and destruction wherever he went. And his next target was England, where after the Battle of Maldon, near the mouth of the Thames River, he forced the Anglo-Saxon king Ethelred the Unready to pay a tribute of 10,000 pounds of silver. And after this, he moved north, plundering Northumberland and Scotland. He attacked the Hebrides and Isle of Man, conducted raids on Northern Ireland, on Wales, on Cornwall and France again. And with a fleet of 94 ships, he again attacked England, killing, looting wildly under uh, King Ethelred, who was called the Unready for good reason, who finally offered him a further 22,000 pounds of silver to please leave England alone, sort of protection money. So off the coast of Cornwall, Olaf heard of a local fortune teller who was renowned to have a gift of prophecy. So Olaf rode to the remote rocky retreats and asked the prophet if he could foresee anything in the future. Thou wilt become a renowned king and do celebrated deeds, and that thou not doubt the truth of this answer, listen to this. And the old man predicted that Olaf would soon suffer a mutiny from his men, in which he would be wounded and carried to a ship on his oblong shield, and after seven days, he had recovered and he had been baptized as a Christian. And many men will thou bring to faith and baptism and both to their own and to others good, he said. Well, 
when the mutiny happened and the wounding and the recovery happened all precisely as this hermit had predicted, all of sought this old man again and inquired, how could you possess such knowledge about the future? And the man humbly confessed, the God of the Christians has blessed me. Well, of course, the Vikings were pagans. They, they worshipped Thor and Odin, and they weren't interested in the Christian God. But uh, incredibly, Olaf Tryggvason submitted to baptism and was converted to Christ. And uh, when the English king Ethelred heard about this, he sent his bishop and officials to present him with royal gifts and to offer him Christian fellowship. Well, in 995, news came from Norway uh, that the leader, Earl Harkon, the very man who had murdered Olaf's father, had caused an uproar in the land by demanding the daughters of respected Viking leaders in the community. And although Earl Harkon had uh, some kind of um, claim that he had once become a Christian when he had been under the power of the German Emperor Otto, he had reverted to heathenism, he had restored the heathen temples, he is persecuting Christians, and he is even getting involved in human sacrifices again. So Earl Harkon, the apostate, had gone so far as to offer his best horses and his youngest son, a 17-year-old son, as sacrifices to the heathen goddess. Now, it was at this opportune time that Olaf, the great-grandson of the founder of the Kingdom of Norway, King Harald Harfager, he determined to leave England to avenge the death of his father, the exile of his mother, the slavery of his youth, and to end the misrule of Earl Harkon. And with just five ships, Olaf landed in Norway and claimed it for Christ. And soon word reached him that Earl Harkon had angered two landowners by attempting to seize their wives for himself. So resistance was growing, and it was strengthened when word reached him that Olaf Tryggvason, the Viking warrior without parallel, was on the way to claim the throne and to deal with Harkon. Well, everyone is impressed with Olaf Tryggvason's height, strength, athletic stature, superior skills, and all the warrior arts, his boldness, his ruthlessness. He was renowned throughout the land of Norway. And so Earl Harkon fled and hid in a pit beneath a pigsty, where he was killed by his slave. Uh, what a ignoble end for someone who would aspire to have run the whole of the kingdom of Norway. Well, at the National Assembly, Olaf was proclaimed king of all Norway, and he then traveled throughout the land, consolidating his rule and attempting to Christianize the people. Well, many of his relatives actually became his first converts, and he appointed them as what he called Christ's captains. I shall make you great and mighty men for doing this work. All Norway must become Christian or they must die. That's what Olaf Tryggvason said. Now, bear in mind, these are the people who had defeated everyone. They had uh, conquered the Turks, they had freed Sicily and uh, the whole of southern Italy from the Turks who had taken over. They, uh, Vikings had been employed even by the Byzantine emperor, uh, not only to reclaim lands of theirs that had been lost to the Muslim Turks, the Ottomans in Italy and in uh, Sicily, but even in Greece. And uh, at that time, Vikings were even the personal bodyguard of the emperor of the Byzantine Empire, which was the largest empire uh, at that time in the world, and had been going for over 500 years since the time of Constantine. So you can imagine, uh, suddenly you've got Olaf Tryggvason, the ultimate Viking, and he says, I'm a Christian and you all have to become Christians too. Well, the scattered settlements on the west and east shores of the Oslo Ford readily accepted baptism, 
But the people in the northern part of the Vic resisted the gospel, so King Olaf challenged the followers of Thorn Odin to combat. And by the end of the year, he had convinced everyone that Christ is greater than Thor and Odin, because King Olaf beat every single one in personal combat, said, you appeal to your God, I'll appeal to the God of the Christians, and let's see who wins this combat. And, well, King Olaf won them all. As he moved to the western and northern fords of Norway, he challenged the heathen to swimming races. Now, bear in mind, you're talking about the North Sea. So it's icy, freezing, cold, unbelievably cold, seriously, seriously cold. And uh, he would beat them at swimming races. He challenged them to archery contests and won. Mortal combat, fights to death and won. And Olaf's message was to the point, repent or die. And those who chose to fight were quickly defeated by Olaf's superior strength and skill. So King Olaf now declared the heathen gods are actually just demons in disguise. And the power behind these idols were evil spirits and all the sorcerers who promoted idolatry and heathenism were to be banished from the kingdom and no longer worthy of Vikings. And those wizards and priests who resisted were killed and some other incorrigibles were marooned on a rock far from shore at low tide. And of course, you can imagine what happened when high tide came. So at Trondheim, which had been the stronghold of the late heathen king, Earl Harkon, the one who had murdered his father, Olaf burned the heathen temples, destroyed their idols, and the local chiefs rose in rebellion against him. So Olaf mustered a large army, and with 30 ships he anchored in the river Nid. Olaf invited the local chiefs to a feast where he indicated he would be willing to perform a heathen sacrifice. And the chiefs gathered together, and so Olaf declared, if I'm to return to the making of heathen sacrifices, then I will make the greatest sacrifice of all. I will not sacrifice slaves. I will sacrifice men, free men. I will sacrifice the greatest of men only. And he named all the most prominent leaders of the opposition as his human sacrifices. Well, the horrified heathen howled in protest. And Olaf gave them a straight challenge. Baptism or battle? And he had 11 leaders held hostage until everyone of their followers were baptized. And at Nyedai Trondheim, the local chief Ironbeard demanded that the king must offer sacrifices as other kings before him had done. Olaf said, I will do so. And he walked into the temple of Thor and smashed the idol of Thor to pieces with his axe. He then killed Ironbeard and persuaded the rest of the village to abandon the heathen ways and to be baptized as Christians. And it's amazing that stories like this aren't told. These should be the subjects of films. It's just extraordinary uh, what the Vikings did, what they experienced, the kind of tough people they were. Well, further north, Olaf faced the strong opposition of King Raud, chief really. Um, uh, he is called Raud the Strong. Well, Raud mobilized his army and a fierce sea battle was fought. And Olaf's forces overwhelmed Raud's rebels and Raud escaped to take refuge in an island hideout in Sultanford. And the narrow channel to the ford was turbulent, and for a week, no ship could enter. And as Raud attempted to mobilize his witchcraft against the king, Olaf summoned his bishop to read the Gospels and to pray. And by some miracle, his ships managed to negotiate the treacherous, turbulent, rocky heads, the entrance to the ford. And soon, Raud was apprehended and brought before the king, who ordered him to submit to Christ. Olaf said, I will not take your property from you. Instead, I'll be your friend, if you make yourself worthy to be so. When Raud rejected this offer with vile blasphemies, Olaf had his men force an adder, a poisonous snake, down his throat. 
Uh, obviously, Vikings had some pretty exotic ways of dealing with their enemies. Well, this was the last resistance to Olaf's crusade to eradicate paganism in Norway. And now he's focusing on winning Iceland for Christ. It's interesting about Iceland because Iceland's green and Greenland's ice. And the reason why the Vikings named those countries in reverse is because Iceland was such a magnificent, wonderful paradise, such a lovely green area. They decided to call it Iceland to discourage people from coming there. Whereas Greenland, which was all ice, they called it Greenland, hoping to attract some settlers to help develop it. So you know, it's <laughs> intriguing uh, how we've got the Greenland called Iceland and the Iceland called Greenland. But that's historically the way the Vikings did it, reverse psychology kind of thing. Well, he now wanted to uh, go to Iceland and uh, he was determined uh, to uh, break uh, the the hold of heathenism in his area. So the next challenge to Olaf, and this is the year 1000, Olaf now died in a spectacular sea battle at Svold. The pagan queen, Sigrid the Haughty, was famous, and she was also furious now because Olaf had spurned her advances. So the queen, Sigrid, mobilized two pagan kings to trap Olaf off the coast of Denmark. And Olaf died as courageously as he had lived, rejoicing that he had succeeded in his mission to convince the Vikings of Norway to abandon their old heathen gods, to destroy their idols, and to commit to following the Christian faith. And in fact, that's testified to by the fact that the flag of Norway has a prominent cross in the middle. And another prominent Norwegian king who consolidated the Christian faith in Norway was Olaf Haraldson. In 1007, when he was just 12 years old, Olaf Haraldson was sent to sea as a sea king to raid Sweden. And late in Denmark, Olaf joined forces with Thorkel the Tor. So this is the young Olaf, Olaf Haraldson now. And he joined forces with Thorkel the Tor, and together they launched raids on Jutland, Frisia, Holland, and England. They tormented poor King Ethelred the Unready, who had already suffered so much at the hands of the earlier Olaf Tryggvason. And in 1009, Olaf and Thorkel attacked London and East Anglia, and they martyred the Archbishop of Canterbury. They plundered the Cathedral of Canterbury. They raided Brittany and France and Spain, uh, even burned Oxford. Then Olaf had a traumatic spiritual experience, and he saw a terrifying vision of Christ. And Olaf abandoned his heathen ways and committed to following Christ. And in 1015, he arrived in Norway and proclaimed himself king. He immediately proclaimed the Christian faith throughout Norway, built numerous churches, and Olaf became the great lawgiver. And with Bishop Grimple, he established the Moster Law. That's not the Monster Law, it's the Moster Law. And while most of Norway accepted this new law, which is based on the Ten Commandments, Trongpilag continued with the pagan practices and therefore incurred the wrath of King Olaf Haraldson. And the uh, next move was moving into the area and he fined or executed the offenders. At Guldbrandl style, the local pagans confronted Olaf with their huge wooden idol of Thor. And Olaf distracted them by drawing attention to the bright sunrise behind him as the herald of his god. And as they turned to face the sunrise, one of Olaf's warriors smashed the idol of Thor and revealed that its wood was rotten. And as the wood collapsed 
and splintered. The gold spilled out and large rats, which had evidently been living off the food offerings that were being put uh, in, uh, before this idol of Thor, they scattered. And King Olaf pointed out that the gold had been wasted on offerings to this rotten idol of Thor. It would look far better if the gold was used for jewelry on their wives and daughters. And this demonstration of Christ's superiority over Thor convinced the locals to be baptized. And so a contemporary report said, they who met as enemies parted as friends. For 12 years, King Olaf Haraldson ruled Norway and brought Iceland and the Faroe Islands to Christianity. And he outlawed Viking raids, which was very unpopular because it had been considered an essential way of life. But he said, no, we've got to love our neighbors. We can't be attacking them. And it's at this point that Denmark attempted to regain control over their previous colony because Norway had once been the colony of Denmark. And so Olaf was forced to flee. In 1030, Olaf attempted to liberate his country from the Danes. And at the Battle of Stickelstadt, his heavily outnumbered people, outnumbered more than three to one, Olaf inspired his men with a battle cry, Fram, Fram, Christman, Crossman, Konigsmann, on, on, Christ's men, crossmen, king's men. And Olaf and his men fought boldly, they fought bravely, but they were overwhelmed by phenomenally superior numbers, and, and uh, ultimately he died in that battle. The Vikings grew to regret the betrayal of King Olaf as Danish taxes and oppression intensified. So within a year, Olaf was popularly proclaimed a saint, and his remains were enshrined in St. Clement. And what he had failed to do in his life, he achieved in his death. He united and inspired his people to win their country's freedom from Denmark. Norway became a united, independent Christian kingdom separate from Denmark. And the cathedral in York is still dedicated to St. Olaf. And it needs to be remembered that Vikings established the city of York. Olaf was regarded by many medieval leaders as the example of the ideal ruler. And the church in Constantinople was dedicated to the memory of King Olaf. And the sword he'd wielded in the Battle of Stickelstad was hung over the high altar. And Olaf was the last Western saint to be accepted by the Eastern Orthodox Church. So it's absolutely amazing that when the Viking era began with such a vicious attack on the Lindisfarne Monastery in 793, nobody could have predicted that the violent Vikings would be conquered by the Prince of Peace and that some of the most enthusiastic missionaries for the advance of Christianity would come from the Vikings. Because the Vikings came to be convinced that the Christian God is more powerful than all other gods. And they saw how he answered the prayers of their Christians. And they witnessed miracles. And they saw how Christian kings and missionaries were able to destroy pagan idols and defy heathen gods and taboos without suffering any ill effects. So they saw that their pagan deities, their idols or gods, were powerless before the all-powerful Jesus Christ. And so Christ was honored and worshiped as the mighty warrior, the greatest Viking, who had triumphed over all the powers of death and hell and the grave. He is the risen, ascended Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and all other authorities are in subjection to him. And all kings will fall down before him, and all nations shall serve him, as the scripture says in Psalm 72. And so today, every Scandinavian country's flag, whether you're talking about Iceland, whether you're talking about the Faroe Islands, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, even the British Isles has crosses in the flags symbolizing and testifying to the 
conversion of the Vikings, the most feared warriors in history, the first Marines, the first warriors who could attack on land or sea, uh, the, the ultimate soldiers, the ones who could defeat any force, whether the Byzantine Empire or uh, whether the Turks. And in fact, a large number of the crusaders who took Jerusalem in 1099 were Vikings, including uh, Behemont, uh, uh, Beaumont, from, who had conquered Sicily, taken it from the Turks, uh, one of the strongest and toughest of all the warriors and physically the most impressive. These were Vikings, and the Normans played a critical role in the First Crusade, which was so super successful. And bear in mind that uh, people like King Richard the Lionheart were descendants of the Vikings as well. So we have Viking blood in the British Isles and as wherever the, the British have gone throughout the world. Uh, we have a lot of great Viking history. And every time we look at our flags, we should remember how the Vikings were converted to Christ, the most ferocious warriors in history. And it should also remind us that those people today who are pushing a passive uh, kind of Christianity, a passivity and a, a weak, wimpish, weedy, half-hearted um, type of uh, religion uh, where they're just doormats for the enemies of the gospel and for the enemies of our country and culture. That, that does not reflect the God of the Bible. It doesn't reflect the apostles. It doesn't reflect the Christians through history. It doesn't reflect our ancestry and the Vikings. Christianity is meant to be tough and strong. And we're meant to be Protestants. We're meant to protest against what's wrong. We're meant to fight the good fight of faith. We're meant to be onward Christian soldiers. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? And through history, the Christian ideal was seen traditionally as being more strong and tough and bold and brave and courageous and risking the perishing and risking the person in distress and standing up for the weak against uh, the attackers and so on. And uh, yet today, it seems that much of what today is, is portrayed as Christianity is sub-Christian. It's not real Christianity because it's willing to tolerate evil. And yet the Bible says to love God is to hate evil. And we called as Christians to fight the good fight of faith and to be able to oppose evil. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will make a stand for me against the workers of iniquity? So I think it's a wonderful thing to uh, look at the Vikings, to study the Vikings, and to try and rediscover what made the West so great, and to go back to that instead of continue with this extremely weak, passive, compromising, cowardly uh, distortion of an apostate version of what is meant to be Christianity, but which is definitely not. It's not true to the spirit of the Bible, not true to the spirit of Christ or to his followers. And so I think going back and studying how the Vikings and the Celts and the Saxons were converted to Christ and what mighty powerful warriors there were and what they achieved, such as in the Crusades against the forces of jihad and Islam and threats to Christian Europe, uh, I, I do believe that it would be very constructive and positive for us to rediscover history. And so uh, I've done a video on, on the Vikings and how, how the Vikings were won to Christ and uh, audios available on the website and if people are interested to learn more about the Vikings and our great ancestry, I hope it'll be an antidote to the uh, weak and compromising cowardly uh, distortion, which today I'm afraid has infected so many people 
that they are wanting to commit cultural and national suicide and demographic suicide and are in many cases tolerating people in pulpits who do not honor and fear God. And uh, I wish we would get the martial spirit of the Vikings and the reformist spirit of the Protestants back into our churches. We need a, a back to the Bible, Reformation, Revival. We need to understand our history better. Uh, back over to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, this is the mistake that so many people make, this Jesus loves everybody um, doctrine that's just not true. Um, you're expected to uh, you know, obey the law, you're expected not to blaspheme, all these various different things. Um, people subsequently come away with this um, feeling of Christ as a sort of um, almost hippie type character, which is how they've portrayed him in many of the mainstream movies when they do portray him. They never portray him accurately, although um, uh, Mel Gibson, of course, did a good job with that. And we know who, how that was received and by whom. But uh, this is what I think puts people off because they see all the evil going on in the world today and they think, well... You can't love everybody because there's a load of people out here doing evil deeds. Are we supposed to love them? Um, and this is the, the, the reason, I think, that the method that they've used to drive people away from Jesus Christ. But when you actually look at what Jesus Christ did and what he said, and the fact that he took on these Pharisees back then who were all powerful and basically told them that they were the uh, devil's children on this planet... And he was dead within three days after he said that. Um, it, it's just astonishing that uh, people don't look things up for themselves. This is where the problem always comes from. It's like we're always told, oh, this is racist or this is uh, anti-Semitic or what have you. And people read that in a news story and they don't look up what the person's the claim the person's made that's supposed to be so wrong and in a lot of cases the news story doesn't even say what the claims are so you can't look them up but mm. the people take the mainstream narrative as as you know i don't like to say it but gospel you know and that's where mm. they've gone wrong and, and so they don't realize the strength of jesus christ and that if you really want to get behind the uh, toughest guy in history then he's the one to get behind. What are your thoughts on that, Peter? Oh, so true. And yes, I think, again, Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, you can see why it was hated so much, because it was the most biblically honest portrayal of the sufferings of Christ. And he was no wimpy, weedy um, Renaissance figure looking like some long-haired hippie with a bedsheet Californian surfer type of thing, which is the way many artists in the imagination with long, delicate surgeon's fingers. Let's face it, our Lord Jesus Christ chose to be born in a carpenter's home and family. He couldn't just order plywood from Timber City to be delivered to his home. He had to go into the forest, chop down the trees, carry the trees back. I mean, just imagine, you're not talking about chainsaws, you're talking about an axe or saw. You're talking about to be a carpenter, you have to be really physically strong. And when our Lord took the whip and he walked into the temple to confront the synagogue of Satan, Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites, all twice as worthy of the damnation of hell, as he put it, uh, everyone fled from him. Now, you can imagine when you've got a, a racket going such as the temple had where they were, oh, you can't bring just any kind of sacrifice in the temple. It's got to be Temple Bureau of Standards approved sheep and doves and so on. And uh, uh, you can't use your worldly shekels. You've got to change them for sanctified temple shekels. And the money changes were, as today, 
cheating. Uh, they were having unjust weights and measures. And, and basically, they turned the temple of God into a den of thieves. And our Lord Jesus comes into this obviously extremely profitable racket. And if you've ever done uh, any kind of work in and around places where there's gangs running, you know, whether you're talking about pimps with their brothels and after an outreaches outside this place, you'll get some very big, strong, tough people coming and threatening your life. And uh, I, I've been confronted by some of these characters the moment we start trying to reach or try to uh, rescue some of these girls who have been uh, human trafficked by them. You can see they have some very big, strong, tough, ruthless characters who will deal with any threat to their profitable business. But our Lord Jesus could walk into the temple, make a whip, turn up, turn the table, scatter the illegal uh, earnings, set free the animals, set free the birds, chase the money lens out temple, and nobody stopped him. Why? I mean, if he is this uh, wimpy, weedy, uh, long, delicate surgeon's fingers, a character that many Renaissance painters depict him as, uh, they wouldn't have had any trouble. But they were probably falling over themselves to avoid his whip and the blazing eyes, which while our Lord could look with such love and compassion on the repentant sinner, yet he looked with such harsh uh, condemnation on these hypocrites, these religious hypocrites who had distorted God's word in the temple and had turned what should have been a house of prayer for nations into a marketplace and a den of thieves. So, uh, yes, I think people need to rethink how they uh, view the Lord and how they understand him and understand somebody who could fast for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness could not have been physically weak. A person who could walk the distances our Lord walked in the terrain and the climate. If anyone of our listeners has walked in uh, the Middle East or in parts of Sahara Desert and so on, as I have, in um, stifling heat way up, uh, so enough to fry your brains just about, and he could walk and he could fast and he could uh, sustain the kind of grueling schedule he didn't know there is. Our Lord had to be physically, mentally, emotionally tough, strong. And his followers have been. And those people who have trusted Christ, people like Mary Slessor, David Livingston, have achieved spectacular things in some of the most difficult environments because strong faith makes strong people. And I understand why some people feel repelled by the version of Christianity they often see depicted, as depicted by some of the so-called bishops and so on, uh, that are out there in archbishops. Uh, but remember what Martin Luther said in the Reformation. Martin Luther said, God will pave the streets of hell with the skulls of bishops and cardinals. And that's, in fact, in keeping with what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 20. Three, if you read Matthew 23, our Lord's condemnation of the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the synagogue of Satan, as he called them in John 8, um, and when he spoke of them as being whitewashed tombs, vipers, full of dead men's bones, uh, twice as worthy of hell, and uh, all his different terms that he used to condemn them, a very uh, shattering condemnation, you can see that there's something that's gone radically wrong with Christianity today. A lot of what is portrayed as Christianity is not biblical. It's not Christ-centered. It's not God-centered. It's not Bible-based. It's not Holy Spirit-led. It's weak, and it's powerless, and no wonder many people despise it. I'm, I'm not surprised that many people today are thinking, maybe we should go back to the old pagan religions of, of the Celts and the Saxons and the Vikings, because they were tough. 
Well, if they want to go back to the ancient Celts and Saxons and Vikings, they need to be converted to Christ because the ancient Celts and Saxons and Vikings came to the conclusion that Christ is greater than Thor. Christ is greater than Woden. Christ is greater than all the idols and all of the uh, uh, false gods and religions that man can cook up. And uh, you just think of, of the uh, great missionaries going into for example, a black forest chopping down the sacred oak of Thor that people worshipped and turning it into a chapel and the people standing waiting for a bolt of lightning from Thor to take out this missionary. But but no, after a while they recognized, well, Christ is greater than Thor. And this is the important uh, message that we need to get today is they have hijacked many churches and rotted from the inside through the uh, Frankfurt School of uh, Marxism, the, the cultural Marxism, so that what many people are looking at and rejecting and despising, they've got to recognize is not true Christianity. And God himself, as in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, condemned that kind of false Christianity with stronger words than any of us could think. God hates religious hypocrites more than we do. And uh, so those people who are sick of the uh, really uh, treacherous kind of Christianity, which is in many cases selling out our country, our civilization, our people. Uh, it is not truly representative of Christ at all. These people are frauds and fakes and religious fancy dress. And uh, we need to get back to the Bible, back to our history, and back to the real Christianity, which made Europe great and made Europe the greatest continent in history and achieved the greatest productivity, inventions, prosperity, and which uplifted and blessed people throughout the whole world with the amount of things Christianity has done from inventing hospitals, universities, universal education, bringing literacy to the cannibals in the Pacific Islands, ending slavery, entering, ending intertribal genocide, ending widow burning, ending the uh, sacrificing of widows uh, on the funeral pile of the husbands and burning of lepers and so many other hideous things. But it's Christian missionaries who brought a standard of living and trebled the life expectancy of the local people in every corner of the world, made Europe such a great continent. And that, sadly, we've seen the reversal of in the 20th century, starting with apostate, backslidden, false religion, and then going on to allowing uh, the banksters to talk people into killing their fellow Christians in these hideous First and Second World Wars which really started the rot. And then, of course, you can see what ca came next. Instead of encouraging people to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and have large uh, families and so on, they suddenly start pushing uh, worlds overpopulated. You need to have birth control. You need to have uh, less children. You need to get sterilized. You've got to have uh, everything from abortions onwards. Uh, and in fact, alternative lifestyles, perversion, homosexuality, lesbianism is better. And next thing you know, Europe's declining and, oh, we need foreign guest workers from Turkey and North Africa and the Middle East to come in to our countries. And now Europe's in danger of being hijacked and of having genocide of the Europeans and total population replacement. And where does it all start? Lack of understanding of a history, lack of understanding of real, true biblical religion, and then allowing ourselves to be guilt manipulated, to be propagandized. Uh, to be Stockholm syndromed, gaslighted, and all these other things that we've seen lately. And that is the background. So when people say, let's get back to the Vikings 
and the Celts and the Saxons, I say, yes, let's do that and learn from our history and see how they came to recognize real power is with Jesus Christ. And let's get back to the Christianity that made Europe great and powerful and strong and safe uh, instead of this uh, mealy mouth cultural Marxism garbage, which today has brought us to the brink of disaster. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And I've got a few books open here uh, based on what you've been saying. Well, let's start us off with, uh, you quoted from, uh, or referred to rather, the book of uh, Matthew chapter 23. And when we go to um, verse 15, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. So, uh, here Jesus Christ is saying that these Pharisees are the children of Satan, but the people that they proselyte are twice the child of hell than them. And I think what he's saying here is that these people are naturally born that way, but when they're able to convert people who aren't, who actually have the potential for salvation, then that is why they become twice the child of hell. And I would identify them today as the Judeo-Christians. And if we go over to... Um, the, uh, there's a book called The Pharisees by Louis Finkelstein, who was specified as the Provost and Solomon Schechter Professor of Theology at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. And in that book he stated, Pharisaism became Talmudism. Talmudism became medieval rabbinism. And medieval rabbinism became modern rabbinism. From Palestine to Babylonia, from Babylonia to North Africa, Italy, Spain, France and Germany, from these to Poland, Russia and Eastern Europe generally, ancient Phariseeism has, Phariseeism, sorry, has wandered. And so again, you're seeing uh, a, a Jewish uh, theological scholar confirming that uh, Phariseeism back in uh, Jesus Christ's time, or the Pharisees, are basically the Judaists today. And uh, just another quote, this is from um, uh, the Jewish Tribune of New York on October the 28th, 1927. Masonry is based on Judaism. Eliminate the teachings of Judaism from the Masonic ritual and what is left. And also speaking on this subject, the well-known rabbi Isaac Wise stated, Freemasonry is a Jewish establishment whose history, grades, official appointments, passwords and explanations are Jewish from beginning to end. So I just wanted to throw that in, uh, Peter. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I'm, I'm deeply concerned that you've got many Christians today who take an unbiblical position that by supporting a secular state in the Middle East by the name of the State of Israel, uh, they will get God's blessings. But they've taken a messianic prophecy uh, about God's promises to Abraham and to his seed. And Galatians um, makes it very clear in Galatians 3.16 that to Abraham and the seed, not to seeds as to many, but to one seed, which is Christ. And so you're blessed in accordance with your faithfulness to Christ. You're cursed in terms of your rebellion to Christ. This is a messianic prophecy. And to take that, which is plainly identified as messianic in its fulfillment, and to apply it now to you must support a political state in Israel in the Middle East and uh, a secular state that persecutes Christians and uh, which has legalized abortion, pornography, and all these perversions and so on, and to assume that God will bless you or curse you in relation to whether you support a political secular state in the 20th century. Honestly, 
How distorted is that? And those people often don't seem to care what happens to their country, and they'll support wars in the Middle East, which are in support of that country, but they they don't even want to defend their own shores from illegal invaders. This is the essence of Judeo-Christian, and you won't find the term Judeo-Christian in the Bible because it's an unbiblical concept. Judaism rejects Christ. Christianity surrenders to Christ. How can you have a rejection of Christ and Christianity in the same term? Uh, so the term Judeo-Christian is not just uh, contradictory. It's, uh, it's in fact, imbecilic. It's, it's a, a contradiction in terms. And a person who uses the term, I understand why they do. It's that you've had it fed to yourself in the media that you often take it on and assume that it's, it's, it's acceptable. But just thinking about it for a moment, Judaism rejects Christianity. As you said, r- rabbinical uh, Judaism is uh, the same thing as the Talmud, which is, has grown out of the Pharisaism, which Christ condemned. If people read the Bible, they would not be able to come out with this sort of idea. Judeo-Christian is not a biblical concept, and it's not even a logical concept. It's like speaking about a God-fearing atheist. So, uh, yes, that is one of the major things wrong with the church today. Is it's forgotten to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus Christ and his great commission to make disciples of all nations, teach obedience to all things he's commanded, the cultural mandate to improve society, to care for the environment God set up. How does this all get distorted and hijacked and derailed into supporting a political agenda of Zionists in the Middle East, which often involves us in wars and making enemies of a vast amount of people that would not have been our enemies otherwise? So, yes, it's it's extremely bad. And I've seen people who uh, adopt the uh, Judeo-Christian concept and the Zionist agenda often lose their interest in missions and caring for the persecuted church and evangelism and Christian education, discipleship, and caring for our own nation, and building up a nation, protecting a nation from external things. So it's, it's a matter of distraction and derailment. Very, very dangerous for us to accept something which is not biblical and which isn't even logical. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And the other thing that uh, you touched on that uh, I made a note of, but you came up with such interesting information. I was getting these books as well, but going back to repentance, and you referred to a repentant sinner. If you look at cancel culture today, pushed by these you know, left-wing anarchist types, uh, they want to go back into someone's history. And if they can find that they said something 20 years ago, whenever, they want that person to be fired from their job, not to work again, so that their children will also suffer, things like this. Well, even though we have the uh, laws of the Bible, uh, Jesus Christ even said that uh, so long as you, if you commit these sins, so long as you address them and you repent and you actively work not to repeat them, and you may well repeat them again, but so long as you are really working hard to repent and to change your behaviour, then you can get salvation. But to these secular, anarchistic, left-wing individuals today, they want to be able to take uh, something that you did in your past that they don't like and not give you any ability to... uh, make up for it in their minds whether it's uh, right or wrong in the first place and when you've got a society like that which is communist in nature that wants to punish you indefinitely and give you no opportunity to make whatever wrong they consider right then you simply have no future uh, we've got a couple of minutes left peter what are your thoughts on that that's so true you see real christianity has atonement there's hope and there's hope because on the other side of repentance and faith in Christ, 
there is forgiveness and there's freedom and there's a whole new life to start and a new start in life. But uh, with the false religions that you get of the guilt manipulating crowd, there's no atonement. There's no redemption whatsoever. There's no hope. Uh, you are, have to be involved in perpetual revolution for perpetual repentance for the crime of being straight, white, Anglo-Saxon, male, Protestant, you know, wasp. And they are uh, trying to get us into where we will be subservient to their New World Order, globalist, occultic designs, anti-Christian designs. So I think it's absolutely vital. Let's, when we know our history, we won't be able to be guilt manipulated and blindsided and derailed by the guilt-manipulating New World Order globalist crowd. Uh, but uh, we need to also know a Bible, then we won't be able to be distorted and distracted and mistaught by these apostates who've hijacked the church, in many cases are wearing religious fancy dress, to deceive people, because many of them are now the commissars of the New World Order, rather than faithful ministers of Christ. So uh, I've actually started a Facebook page called Vikings for Christ, Vikings with the number four Christ. And uh, because there's a resurgence of interest in Vikings, and uh, I've actually done an article on the historic inaccuracies in the History Channel's Vikings film, uh, that Irish-Canadian uh, film series created by Michael Hurst, and uh, I listed 11 uh, inaccuracies, major inaccuracies in, in the Vikings series, and um, that may interest people to, to know, uh, because it's terrible when something's depicted as historical, and yet it's ahistorical and dishonest and twists things, such as, for example, they depict the missionary Ansgar as being a failure, executed by Queen Aslog when he failed the test. But in fact, Ansgar, uh, the real Ansgar, the apostle to the north, lived a long life, succeeded in winning the Vikings to Christ, miracles accompanied his ministry, impressed the Vikings. And so uh, you wouldn't know any of the real history of the Vikings by watching Hearst's History Channel fiction, it's so much better to get to the real thing. The real thing, the real story is always better than the Hollywood distortions that they can come out with. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Peter. Fantastic show as always. Uh, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Peter will be back with us again at the same time next week. I want to thank all of you for listening. I will, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. Have a great day. And until then, folks, bye for now. <laughs>